Well, uh, church, I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. Today we're going to consider verse 26 through to verse 38. Merry Christmas. The season seems like it's fully in swing already. You know, it's kind of a kind of cliche and a little worn out for Christians to be able to say something like, you know, look at the world and what the world does around this time and say Jesus is the reason for the season. It's true, but I think sometimes in saying this, what we're really doing is beating back against the secularization of this season, but I wonder if we're actually grasping on to the significance of what's really happening. So we look at the traditions of the holiday season, so-called, that the culture has, and it's already in full swing. We've already had several sales that you can buy for gifts online and in stores. You can get those traditional red cups at your favorite uh, coffee shop for your caffeinated uh, drink. You or family might have gone to one or multiple different parades down Main Street, and we know there's more. Well, there's no, there's more to the significance of the Christmas, but I wondered, do we actually appreciate it? Maybe it's, maybe we can't because it's the noise of the culture. Maybe we can't because we're just beating back against it, but not sure what to grab onto. Or maybe we know where it resides in the scriptures and in the narrative story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but we're so familiar with the story that um, it's watered down and it's not appreciated in the way that it has in the past. This year we want to recapture the significance of Christmas. This year we want to appreciate what we know to be true in a way that it actually produces a sense of a joy and fullness and wonder in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And in order to be able to grasp this, we're going to look at the story of the incarnation through the eyes of the mother of Jesus, Mary. This week, we're going to look at the way that she responded to the announcement of the birth of Jesus. And for the next three services following this weekend, up until Christmas Eve, we're going to look in detail at the song that she sang in response to the news. She's going to be our example, our model, this teenage girl. And what I believe the Lord will teach us through this time, and specifically today, as we look at her character, is this. The significance of Christmas can only truly be appreciated by those who are poor in spirit. This is how Mary interpreted the news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It was the gift of mercy to the poor in spirit. She had that character. You might know the truth, but I don't believe we'll be able to fully appreciate it as the Lord wants us to if we miss the character of a heart that's poor in spirit. So as we do, would you stand together with me to honor God in the reading of his word we're going to read Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 33. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You can take your seats, church. Before we consider this passage and understand what the significance of Christmas and how we can live poor in spirit, let's take a moment and turn our attention to the Lord together as I pray. Lord, I recognize that I have nothing of value before such a holy God as you. There's nothing that I can do to prove my worth. There's nothing that I have to prove any worth. But I know that in my sin before you, I'm worthless. Father, you are a treasure. You are rich in mercy. And you've loved us with a great love, even while we were still sinners. At the right time, Christ for the God, died for the ungodly. At the fullness of time, Christ came born of a virgin. So Lord God, in the noise of our culture and the familiarity of this story, give us eyes to see the incarnation of Jesus in the same way that Mary saw it, so that we might truly appreciate the significance of Christmas with a heart that is poor in spirit. In Jesus' name, help us. Amen. The significance of Christmas can only be appreciated by those who are poor in spirit. What we want to do with our time today is ask, what was so significant about Christmas? And then consider, how was Mary poor in spirit? And then look in Mary's response briefly and consider, how will my heart actually change? And what joy can I actually find when I genuinely and truly appreciate Christmas for what it is with the heart that I need? So our first question that we want to ask and answer, why? Why was the news of Jesus' birth so significant? And I see three reasons in this passage that the birth of Jesus is so significant. One that kind of is carried over from the whole narrative story of the incarnation. And here's the first one. It was significant because that announces Jesus as the great son of God. Look at the text again with me, verse 31. The angel greeting said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Son of the Most High here is used synonymously with the term Son of God in verse 35. Son of the Most High means Son of God. While, Mary, uh, while Jesus was born of Mary, his conception proceeded from the Father by his power. Mary's child was divine. This is how Jesus understood himself. He knew he was the Son of God. 
When he was 12 years old, he went to the temple in Jerusalem for the first time. And he followed together with a caravan of families from Galilee going up towards the Temple Mount. And they were there for a few days. And after the festival at Jerusalem was over, the caravan went back to Galilee. And his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, assumed that he was coming back with them. And then went a day's journey and realized, we left our boy in the big city. Then they went back a full day's journey. And their 12-year-old boy was in the big city by himself for two days and a night. And then they started looking for him and couldn't find him. And eventually, they found him taking the teachers of the law to school in the temple. And, and Mary approached her son and said, don't you know that we were worried for you? And he responded and said, wouldn't you know that I would be about my father's business? Didn't know you know I'd be in my father's house? Was he speaking of Joseph? No, Joseph wasn't his house. Joseph had left with Mary and forgot him. Whose house was the temple? It was the house of Yahweh, the God who spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who revealed his name to Moses, the God who created the heavens and the earth. And this was his son, and and he came from heaven to earth as a child. This is how his disciples understood him. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his followers, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the significance of the news of the birth of Jesus Christ. It announces Jesus as the great son of God. And this significant news is relevant for our lives today too. The knowledge of Jesus as the son of God gives us assurance of truth. The world is looking for what's true. Why this world exists. What our purpose in it is. Where we came from. Where we're going. How I should live my life now. Everyone is looking for truth. Jesus himself said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, the word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the father's side. He, Jesus, has made him, the father, known. The unseen, invisible God who spoke in the universe was created. He cannot be seen, or if we, anyone sees him, they will die. But what can be fully known about God is comprehensively revealed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man. If you want to know why we're here, where we came from, where we're going, how to live your life, who God is, you can because Jesus came to earth as man. You can. We don't need to climb some mountain to reach the truth of God. God came down to us so we could know him. The search is over and you can have assurance of what truth and who truth is. That's why Jesus is significant. That's why Christmas is significant. Not only because he's the great son of God, but also he is the promised savior king. Look again with me at the text, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Joseph, Joseph came from a family lineage that could be traced all the way back to the great king of Israel, King David. That same king who's the king who defeated the giant Goliath. That same king whom the Lord of heaven promised that one of his sons would become a king over the nation of Israel, the house of Jacob, as the passage says. And that king, a descendant of David, would rule forever over the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And further prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel said that this king wouldn't just have dominion and reign and rule over the nation of Israel, but that his reign would extend without end over the whole world. And no one would contest his authority. Joseph, from the descendant, a descendant of David, then married Mary. So the children she would have then came and were associated with that Davidic line. Jesus is a son of David, the son of God, and the true king of Israel. But when they were looking for a king, Israel, they weren't just looking for someone to sit on a throne and make decisions. They were also looking for a a deliverer. They were looking for a savior. They were looking for someone who could rescue them from their bondage and their oppression so that they could exist as an autonomous kingdom that would be so great that it would extend over all nations. But the reality was, for Israel at this time when Mary was alive, there was a Roman soldier around every corner. And every time they saw a Roman soldier, that was another indication that the true king wasn't there because Caesar was king. So this was relevant to them, the need for a promised savior king, because they saw the evidence of their bondage everywhere, in the occupation of the military, in the taxes that they had to pay to Rome. And they wanted to be delivered. And the good news is that Jesus Christ is that savior. He is that king. That's the way he understood himself, as the king of a kingdom. In Luke 5, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. This is how his disciples understood him. When the good news of the kingdom went into the whole world after Jesus ascended back to heaven when he rose from the dead, his followers were sharing the news of the gospel across the Roman Empire. And in Acts 17, some of the followers of Jesus were being persecuted. And the reason they were being persecuted was because of this. Acts 17.7 says that they were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there was another king, Jesus. So this was so meaningful to them because they were waiting for the kingdom and longing for the kingdom and they saw the evidence of their oppression and their bondage around every corner. It was relevant to them. What about us? We too need a deliverer. We too need someone to rescue us from the worst of crises that has created the worst of oppression and the worst of bondage. I don't know about you, but I try to stay updated with what's happening in the news. And when I look at the news, I see the world kind of in turmoil. Oppression and bondage is everywhere. In developing countries and in developed countries. We're oppressed by inequality, even 
In developed countries, there's a gap between the rich and the poor is getting wider, let alone those countries that aren't in societies like North America. We're pressed by disease. The vaccines and uh, cures that are so readily available in our society are so rare in other societies and people are dying way too young. But the fear and anxiety that our culture has towards climate change, that scientists are communicating that if things don't change in very few years, we will be too far gone and the world could burn up and be fully destroyed. And these are terrible consequences. The bondage and the oppression as a result of these things are severe. But they're not the worst crises and oppression and bondage that our society and our country and our world is oppressed by. Generation after generation for all of time, the worst crisis that humanity has ever and will ever experience is the crisis of the curse of sin that stains every human heart. See, all of these things, inequality and disease and a broken world is a result of creatures in a creation made by who have rejected their creator. Humanity turned from their creator and turned away from his blessing and embraced the curse. They turned away from the king because they wanted to follow their own way. They turned away from life and embraced death. That's what sin is. And every human heart is under that curse. And every human heart is oppressed by this bondage. And there's nothing we can do to restore ourselves into paradise and into relationship with God. We're hopeless apart from him. The crises in our world, even if they actually met their farthest end, aren't as bad as the crisis of sin. Yes, disease might shorten your life. Yes, inequality might make, give you a poor life. Yes, at its worst, climate change is threatening to end life on the planet. But no doctor, nor politician, nor activist can offer eternal life. Only the true Savior King Jesus Christ can. And he will come and will make all things new. And establish his eternal kingdom where all suffering and disease and inequality caused by the curse of sin because we're separated from our father will be gone. Because he will be with man again. And, and the remarkable thing is that such a deliverer and king and God as this came to earth in a miraculously meager manner. Recently, the government of Canada started the new parliament by having a throne speech. We just had an election and parliament just started to meet and to inaugurate that, they had this great parade with pomp and circumstances and the Supreme Court were wearing their Santa Claus suits and the governor general sat on a throne and made a speech and all of the pomp and all of the circumstance and that's what our culture expects its leaders to be presented as. In pomp and circumstance and puffed up as something to idealize. But the Son of God who offers the assurance of truth and the Savior King who alone offers the security of hope, he didn't come like that. 
He came in a miraculously meager manner. See, the reality is Mary's conception was done so by the power of God. The reality is that this was divine work, but her, the perception to her neighbors was, oh, this is a scandal. You were fooling around, weren't you? And she had to carry that stigma for nine months. Not the great start for a reputation for the child who's supposed to be the king of all of the world. And not only that, when the birth came, they had to make a journey from uh, Galilee into Bethlehem. But maybe they were too late, or who knows, but when they wanted to have the night to stay, and it was time to give birth, no one accepted them, and they were outcast. And the king of the world was born in a barn, and his crib was the trough out of where the donkeys ate. The great son of God, who is the promised king of the world, came in a miraculously meager manner. This reminds me of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. See, the proud person won't look to the shameful or the outcast for the assurance of truth. The proud person won't look to the shameful or the outcast for security of hope. But that's where Christ is found. And if that's where you find yourself today, friend, outcast by the world, burdened by shame, that's where you can find the love of God. Because that's where our Lord is. And if we're going to appreciate the significance of our great Savior, King, and the Son of God, we can only do so when we have a character that is poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think it's pretty simple if you just invert the words. Poor in spirit, spiritually poor. To be poor in spirit is to recognize in your heart that I am spiritually bankrupt before God. That in my sin in light of a holy God makes me so poor, in spirit, so spiritually poor, that there's nothing that I can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing that I can do to prove my worth before God. There's no value I have before God that is anything worth recognizing. And it's admitting that and living with that attitude. There's no good in me. I fully need you. And that was Mary. And because she was poor in spirit, she could really appreciate the significance of what was happening. And just pause for a second here to recognize Mary's a teenage girl. Young people, don't think that you can't ha don't have anything that you can't, can't be used by God. Don't think that you need to grow up before you're useful to the Lord. And to those of us who are past our teen years, don't look down on the youth. The scripture actually says that they can be examples to us. And by the grace of God, many of the young people in our church have such a faith and such a character and such an act of service and such humility that puts some of us who are decades older to them to make like we're the teenagers in the faith. This woman is our example. 
This teenage girl shows us what it truly is to be poor in spirit before God. And when we model our lives after her humility, we, after her poor in spirit, we can appreciate the significance of who Jesus is. So how was Mary poor in spirit? Well, three ways. Here's the first one. She chose humility. Do you choose a life humility or do you enjoy your arrogance and your pride? The proud person won't humble themselves because their attitude is, I earned this. Look at her response to the message of the angel in verse 28. It says, he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. See, a proud person would hear that and say, yeah, finally you found my address. About time I got some recognition. But that's not what Mary responded. She said she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting might be. She's like, are you at the right place? I've found favor? What have I done to find favor with God? And the reality is she did nothing. God chose to give her favor. God gives grace to the humble, not to the proud. But the proud see God's grace as a reflection of their own greatness. Like a foolish child who's told, if you take a dime and hold it up at the right angle in front of the sun, it's actually bigger than the sun. And they look at the eclipse of this small dime over this blazing star and get be convinced it's bigger. And in the same way, so many of us want to be something great, that all that's in our frame of view is what we've done, that we've in our own mind eclipsed God to think that we, the creature, are greater and bigger than the immense glory of the creator. The significance of Christmas can only be appreciated by those who are poor in spirit. You won't. You'll love Christmas as their culture offers it if you like pride and arrogance. You'll hate Christmas as Christ offers it you're not poor in spirit. Not only did she choose humility, but also she chose submission. She offered herself fully to the will of God in obedience. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The proud person won't submit because their attitude is, my way is the right way. My way is the right way. Like a driver who will not give their right of way up no matter what and gets into the middle of an intersection wanting to turn left and they know as soon as that light hits yellow, oncoming traffic needs to stop and it's my right of way. And they see the, oncoming, the light turn yellow but they see the oncoming traffic's not slowing down. But in their mind, they won't give up the right of way. And it's not slowing down, but they make the turn anyway. I've got the right of way. And the car keeps coming, but they don't slow down. If I get hit, insurance will prove I'm right. I might go to the hospital, but at least I'll be right. What kind of person does that? The proud person won't submit. But so often in our walk with Christ, we stubbornly will not submit either. 
Notice what Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Christian, it's inescapable that if you put your faith in Jesus, you are his slave. He purchased you with the price of his own life. He redeemed you from your slavery to death, and now he owns you as his good, and he is your good master, and he loves you. It is impossible to say anything else, but I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to your word. But so many of us say, I am the servant of the Lord. Can you find another servant though? Or, yes, I'm the servant of the Lord, but I'm going to pass on this one. If you are the servant of the Lord, the only natural response is let it be done according to your word. What kind of relationship are you going to have, slave of Christ? What kind of relationship are you going to have with your master if you keep turning your back to him? His will is for your good. His will is his love for you. And to turn your back on your master and stubbornly not submit is to turn your back on your master's good for you and love for you. But Mary didn't do that. She found the blessing because she was poor in spirit. Only the poor in spirit can truly embrace the significance of Christmas and appreciate it for what it is. She chose humility. She chose submission. And thirdly, she chose faith. She's at first confused, like, how is this going to work? I haven't done the thing I need to do in order to have a kid. How is this going to work? And the angel tells her the power of God will bring this child about. And to give her confidence that the Lord would do it in her, the angel said what God had already done already in someone else. This is such good news that the Lord can do in you what he's also done in others. And a relative of Mary's, Elizabeth, was way past child baby-making stages, but the Lord miraculously gave her a child. And that confidence in what God has done in Elizabeth gave Mary the confidence and the faith that he could do and fulfill what he did in her. And then after she said, let it be done, he, she went and visited her relative Elizabeth. And this is what she said in verse 45. Elizabeth said of Mary, verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. But the proud person can't believe because their attitude is, no, I know what's best. I can trust myself. I don't care what blessing you're on, you want to give me. I'm not giving up my way. I'm trusting in myself. I know what's best. Faith doesn't require that you know everything, but that you trust what God has revealed to you. I'm certain Mary wasn't aware of all of the implications of what have been happened, but she believed. I, I so appreciate the parable that Jesus told about the treasure hidden in a field. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the middle of, the, of a field. The message of Jesus is the great son of God and the promised savior king who would die for our sins so that we could have eternal life is a treasure hidden in a field. And he said in this parable that a man found this treasure and upon finding it, immediately he went and sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field. 
I always found it interesting that he sold everything that he had to buy not just the treasure, he bought, sold everything that he had so that he could buy the field. Had he charted all the land of all that field? Probably not. Did he know everything that was done and all of the liabilities that might have been in that property? Probably not. But he knew the treasure in the middle of it. And he knew that was worth get, selling and leaving everything he thought life was before so that he could have the treasure. There's still so much about the message of Christianity in the scriptures that I do not understand. But by the grace of God, I am learning more of it and want to know more of it. But I know the treasure in the middle of it. And the message of Jesus Christ is worth so much more than anything the world can offer. Then I can believe what God has revealed and is certain that it's true that I'm willing to leave everything else. And I'm, the proud person won't do that, though. They want to be certain of every inch of the property and they will trust themselves. Faith is believing God's word, hearing God's word, trusting that it's true, and acting on what it says. Mary believed and she's found the blessing, and it spilled over with a song of praise to God. And she was able to do so because she was poor in spirit, because she knew she was spiritually bankrupt. The significance of Christmas can only be appreciated by those who are poor in spirit. Do you want the cheap blessing that the world has for this season? Or do you want to enjoy the fullness of the significance of the great Son of God, who is the promised Savior King? So what will it look like if you actually are poor in spirit and we actually grasp the full significance? How will your heart change? What will it look like when you have a full appreciation for Christmas? Well, over the next three weeks, we're going to look in detail at the song that Mary sung in verse 46 to verse 55 and hear how she recognized that Christmas was a gift of mercy to the poor in spirit. But there are three ways that I simply see in this song, three ways that she appreciated Christmas that we can today too. Let's look at this together in the song that she sung, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. When you truly appreciate Christmas, you'll have joy in the Lord. No gift, no vacation, no festivity, no party will compare to the irresistible, uncontainable joy in the Lord when I know that he is the Son of God and the Savior King. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Not only join the Lord, but we'll give thanks for God's mercy because our hearts will be satisfied by mercy. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. See, the poor in spirit recognize they are empty. They are hungry. They are needy. And when they embrace the significance of Christmas, 
the truth and the hope that is offered by the great Savior King and the Son of God, that mercy, it satisfies the longing of their soul. And they can give thanks to God and have a contentment in it. Appreciating Christmas means having joy in the Lord, giving thanks for his mercy, and then also it's having hope for the world. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. See, Christmas isn't just fulfilling a promise that God made to David, but it's also fulfilling a promise that God made to the father of our faith, Abraham. God promised to Abraham that a son from his family, who would be the son of David, would be a blessing not just to the nation of Israel, but would be a blessing to all families of the earth. Hope has come for the world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Mary knew the significance of Christmas. She knew that the child born to her in the dark of Bethlehem would be the only light for all the world. And you can have that same hope too. You can be satisfied in that same way too. You can have that same joy in the Lord but we can't unless we have that character like Mary. Those who can truly appreciate the significance of Christmas are those who are poor in spirit. May God make us all like this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the good news of the message of Christmas. Thank you for the great power of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Lord, I praise you that through an meager way, you sent the great Son of God who is the promised Savior King, not in the pomp and circumstance that our world looks for, but through an outcast who was shamed. Thank you, Lord God, for us who feel outcasted or shamed because of our own sin, who feel lost and have no assurance of truth or feel despairing and have no security and hope. Lord God, would you supply this to us? Would you grant us assurance and truth? Would you comfort us with security and hope? Would you teach us to be poor in spirit? And with that character, would you allow us to appreciate the fullness of Christmas for what it is in such a way that will give glory to you and satisfy our souls? In Jesus' name, amen.